0: Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gamble's Terrace, Antigua. Last week in our study of the Book of Romans, Pastor Murphy began to review what we've studied thus far in chapters 1 through 5. We left off last week reviewing chapter 4 where we studied God's justification by faith alone rescue plan. Today we'll continue to see how this rescue plan works, and also review what we learned in chapter 5. So exactly
1: how does this plan work? You know, if you go back to Romans chapter 4 verse 8, Paul quotes David the Psalmist in Psalm 32 verse 2. And uses David's statement in Psalm 32 verse 2 to to explain how it works. And here's how it works. David said, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. I repeat, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. You know what that means? It simply means this. When a man confesses his sin before God and asks God for pardon. All that that man committed against God, God acquits him of. God doesn't even remember. He forgives him completely. He doesn't impute it. He doesn't put it to his account. He doesn't put it there and say, you know what? i can going that what you did. i just keeping it there to remind you next time what you did. That's how we operate, isn't it? But not God. Blessed is the man, and the word blessed means happy, is the man to whom God will not impute iniquity. So when a man comes before God and confesses things before God, and I'll it. David said, that man is blessed because that iniquity is not put towards that man to It's forgotten, remembered no more. So this JBFA plan involves, first of all, not imputing the sin of the belief. The person, the person who comes to God who has got sin and he asks God for forgiveness and believes in Christ, that sin is not put towards the account. It is washed away and remembered no more. In the blood of Christ. You read Romans chapter 4. That's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story because you only know, you don't need your sins forgiven. I mean, that's one thing. So I, I, I need something else. You need more than forgiveness. Paul says, he not only not impute your iniquity, but get this, he imputes the righteousness of Christ towards you. He puts Christ's righteousness towards you. Account. You see the glory of our redemption? That is what justification by faith is. Taking your sins, forgiving your sins, throwing them away, washing them away, you'll never remember anymore. And then in addition to that, he takes all that Christ is, as righteous as Christ is, he says, I put that to your Come. You've heard me say this many, many times and I hope it finally gets home to you. If that were not true, you and I could not approach God. I repeat, if that were not true, you're not going to approach God. Because if God is absolutely holy, even though he's forgiven my sins for yesterday, this day I'm going to sin. So how am I going to approach a God? I still got sin. There's only one answer. By putting me in the righteousness of Christ, when God sees me, he sees me in Christ, therefore I can approach him. That's why the Bible talks about being in Christ. See? That's the great doctrine that Paul is dealing with in this section. So this JVFA plan means two things. Your sins are forgiven, but it means more than that. It means that righteous Christ is put towards your account. Wouldn't it be wonderful for some of you this morning that you got a mortgage to pay and you look into your bank account and it's hemorrhaging red. and got nothing in there. And unbeknown to you, some brother or sister learns of your situation. Doesn't tell you, but secretly goes into the bank and says, Look, put $3,000 toward that sister's account. So you don't know, but uh, something says, Let me just check that in again. Well, when are you going to use these $3,000, what are you going to do? Give it back? <laughs> no, you rejoice. You, you just, I don't deserve this. I mean, what I did to deserve this? I, I, I don't, I, what I did. Nothing. So what do you do? You just rejoice. That somebody out of uh, gratuitous heart has just downloaded some money into your account. That's a pale comparison. But let me just tell you, that's exactly what God did for you. You are as righteous this morning if you put your faith and trust in Christ as Christ is. Because his righteousness becomes yours and you are in Christ. You're clothed in Christ. And it's for that reason alone, you have a right to approach God. Without that, you can't. This is how Paul put it in Philippians chapter 3 verse 9. And I want to read these words. He said, "He said, I want to be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which comes by the law, but that which is through faith of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God by faith. That's how Paul puts it. If you want to be righteous and have your own righteousness, you've got to do what the law says. And Paul is very, very careful that no matter what a man does, nobody can keep the law perfectly. And if you break one law, what happens? You break all ten. See, That's what the Bible says. So you can never have the righteousness the law produces to stand before God in your holiness. You need the righteousness that God gives to you as a result of faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul says, I want to be found in that day not claiming I'm a righteous person because I follow the law. I want to claim in that day that I am righteous because I am in Christ. I have His righteousness because of my faith in Him. This is the truth that the Apostle Paul teaches. And that brings us to the fourth thing. In this J.B.F.A. plan, Pastor, where does works and the law And religious ordinances come in. The Apostle Paul, by the way, answers this question. Paul says, Neither works, nor the law, nor religious ordinances have anything to do with your salvation. The answer to that question, they've got zilch to do with it. Nothing. Zero. Let's talk about the law of works for just a moment. In dealing with the example of Abraham in chapter 3. Chapter 4, sorry. The Apostle Paul points out that Abraham was not justified by works. He said Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. That's the first thing that the Apostle Paul points out. The Apostle Paul says, if Abraham was justified by works, he could boast. But he said these words, but he can't boast before God. See? And then the Apostle Paul said, if Abraham was justified by works and God gave him salvation as a result of his works, he, he has gotten salvation as a result of a reward. He, God owed him a debt and God had to pay the debt by giving him salvation. The Apostle Paul is knocking this concept of works and showing you that if salvation is based on works, God gives you salvation as a reward, not as a gift. But salvation is a gift, not a reward. Let me put it this way. Imagine Brother Chris coming to me this morning and saying, Pastor Murphy, I've got a gift for you. I said, gift? Gift? That's very strange. He never gave me one before. No, just joking. <laughs> but he came and he bought the gift. He said, Pastor, i got a gift for you. There's only one hitch. It'll cost you $20. <laughs> no, that's supposed to he said. I've got a gift for you, but one hitch, it'll you $20. That's not a gift. That's a payment. So when I exchange payment, that's a reward. He, he, I, he, gave, me, I gave, me, he gave me a reward of... Of what I paid him for. That's what Paul is saying. If salvation is of works. It is no longer a gift. It's a reward. But we know that salvation is a gift of grace. That's Paul's argument. So I know that there are some of you. That are probably sitting here. And probably saying you know. I, I would like to trust Jesus as my savior. But I am not good enough. Well you're the person who should get saved. If you don't think you're good enough. You're the right person. Well, Pastor, I want to get saved, but I need to clean up my life. I need to do this, I need to do the next. I'm saying to you that you are wasting your time. You'll never let me ask you. Suppose you clean up five of those things in your life. How many more left? You spend your whole life trying to clean up everything about yourself. Because after you clean up the outward things you're doing, let's talk about the inward things, no your thoughts. It's enough to drive you to desperation. I'll never be ready, pastor. And that's the point of the Bible. If we're dealing with the matter of works and how good I am, we'll never enter the kingdom of God. God has to act in mercy and grace and give us a free gift, an offer. The point that Paul makes in the passage is that Abraham was redeemed apart from any works whatsoever and there's no one or any person in this building or listening under the song to my voice this morning that can ever get one inch into the kingdom of God as a result of your works and your activity See? that needs to be cleared up in order for you to embrace what is called the gospel of salvation well that brings me to the next thing then pastor what about the law what about the law and by the way, there are people today who are totally depending on keeping the law to get into the kingdom. And I got a shock for them. The greatest shock they will ever receive is that when they come to heaven's door, and God asks them, why should I let you in? And they make the mistake of saying, well, I've kept the law. <laughs> Listen to me. <laughs> That's the greatest shock they'll ever receive. See? That's another way. That's another door. No man cometh in the other door by the man, but through Christ Jesus, See? So what about the law? And by the way, there's a reason why the Apostle Paul dealt with this matter in Romans. Because there's nothing the Jews revered revered more than the law. And you know what Paul points out? That when Abraham was saved in Genesis chapter 15, (laughs) where was the law? The law came 430 years after Abraham was saved. So what what does the law have to do with salvation? Salvation. The problem with people is that people don't use logic. They don't know do reasoning any longer. They just, you appeal to the emotions. If you apply the logic of the script, you'll see that the law can never save a man. Never was designed to save a man because Abraham was saved without the law. By faith. 430 years the law then came. But Abraham was saved 430 years before the law came. So how come the law becomes necessary for salvation No. The Apostle Paul is dealing with this plan that God has. And the Apostle Paul wants us to be sure that your salvation is so guaranteed because it's not based on these things that will prop you up like works, like the law. It's not dependent upon you. It depends on what God has done for you. That's what Paul is dealing with. This brings us to the next thing that you want to ask. Well, pastor, what about ordinances? You know why I want to bring that up? Because I talk to people all the time. And when I discuss with them about getting, uh, you know, becoming a member of the church or whatever it is, I, I got to get baptized. You have to tell me, that I got to get baptized. Or when I ask them, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian because I'm baptized there are lots of people in this country who believe that baptism is is salvation. Other people will tell you, "I'm, I'm confirmed. I am confirmed, but where do you find that? It's not there. When it comes to ordinances, the Apostle Paul points out that not even that is part of your, this plan that God has. You know how he does that? The Apostle Paul asked a question in the book of Romans chapter 4. He asked, was Abraham justified when he was circumcised or when he was uncircumcised? And by the way, there's no ordinance that Jews value more than circumcision because circumcision is where you, this was the covenant sign that you became part of God's people and you belong to Israel. The circumcision was the proof, the outward proof that you belong to God's people. There's nothing there revered more than this matter of circumcision. So Paul asked the question, When was Abraham saved? When was Abraham justified? Did he get justified when he was circumcised or before he was circumcised? And the answer he gives is, Before Abraham was even circumcised, he was saved. So where does the ordinance of circumcision come in? And the reason why I think that's important is that people must understand that there's no ordinance in the church that saves you. I was thinking about the Jews and how much they're involved in rituals and love. All the different outward forms. Uh, They got circumcision. They got feasts. They got sacrifices. They got days. They got weeks. They got jubilees. They got washing. They got special garments the priests must wear they have certain foods they have vows they have offerings they have ablutions they've got Sabbath they got spring days we Gentiles don't even have for that <laughs> so if we were depending on ordinances to save us we are lost? See. the apostle Paul is saying to the Gentiles and saying to the world as well that this plan of God ordinances play no role in our redemption. So whether a person is baptized or confirmed or whether a person is doing penance or whether a person is, and by the way, whether you get extreme unction, you know what extreme unction is? If you're Catholic, you know what extreme unction is? Extreme unction is when you're dying just in case you miss out all the other things. You call the priest and you tell the priest, I dying, and I want you to give me uh, this final phase. I want you to just Wash away all my sins and forgive me my final I, I don't want to go into eternity. So you call the priest. and You have what is called extreme unction. <laughs> he anoints you and prepares you for the dead. But not even that. Has a single solitary thing to do with your redemption. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand that this plan has nothing to do with these matters. Whether it be the law, whether it be works or whether it be ordinances, it has nothing to do. And by the way, you know why? Why it is of faith and faith alone? Romans four sixteen says these words, and I quote: "Therefore, it is the faith that it might be by grace." I repeat: "Therefore, is of faith that it might be of grace." If it is not of faith, it is not of grace. If it is not of grace, it is not Bible salvation. It is something else. Argument, argument. The Apostle Paul has given us the good news. That God has a plan. And that God's plan is offered to us solely on the basis of our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Any other news... It's bad news, it's a false gospel, it's a humanistic distortion, it's a damnable heresy. As the Apostle Paul says, it's another gospel, not the gospel in the scriptures. So, here we are, the whole question of human sin is dealt with. He prosecutes the case against the Jew, he prosecutes the case against the Gentiles. He shows that all are condemned, none righteous no, not one, all, of, all are doomed. All are under. Then Paul says, okay, I've got good news to you. He passed these he, with the gospel. He explains this gospel. And he explains that this gospel is based on faith in Christ. And when that happens, God imputes. righteousness Christ, Christ, to your all come. It's this way because that's the only way grace can save you. If it has to do with works, it has to do with ordinances, or it has to do with the law, it's no longer a matter of grace, it's a matter of reward. So you've got to decide what kind of a gospel you want. And that brings me to the next thing that the Apostle Paul deals with. After you're saved, the greatest truth that you must come to realize is that you are saved forever. That you are saved eternally. That never again will you come into condemnation. You have passed from life, from death to life. That you have eternal life. Not, will have life, That you have eternal life. The moment you put your faith and trust in Christ, God imputes eternal life to you. That truth is the greatest truth you must learn after you become a believer. So what Paul does from chapter number 5 to chapter number 8, The Apostle Paul explores this subject of the believer's security. And the Apostle Paul piles argument upon argument. And Paul uses reason upon reason so that the believer may have certainty as to his eternal salvation. You know why that's true? And why it was so important for Paul to spend all these chapters on security? Because no Christian can be truly happy and enjoy the Christian life. If he is not too sure, he truly, genuinely, authentically is a child of God. You can't enjoy the Christian life. Look, unless I know who my father is and whose house I'm living in, I can't enjoy the freedom and liberty of what is in that house for me. I can't go into the refrigerator because I don't even know if I'm his child. Those who know his child, they have a freedom to go in to take whatever they want. But me know I'm reserved because I'm not too sure who daddy is. I'm not even sure I belong to the house. So every time I'm living, and wanting, wondering, are you going to put me out next week? You can't live your Christian life doubting whether you belong to God or not. How are you going to enjoy your Christian life? You know the Bible talking about the abundant life? Oh, you can't ever live the abundant life if you're not too sure that you belong to God. And that's why the Apostle Paul spends so much time, chapters 5 to 8, dealing with this whole question of the believer's security. He wants you to be absolutely certain that you belong to the Lord. Can I give, give you a secret? Here's the secret. The devil knows that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and trust Him that you are eternally secure. He knows that. He knows something else. You know what he knows? He knows the Bible said, the joy of the Lord is the believer's strength. The joy of the Lord is the believer's strength. See? If I know God loves me eternally, if I know that God, uh, God loves me unconditionally, if I know that if I know that I really believe this, no matter what happened, he loves me, cares for me, going to, that is where your joy comes from. So when does somebody mistreat you? What do you do? You find comfort in knowing that God loves you unconditionally. You turn to him. The devil knows that. So if I know that the believer's strength, joy is his strength, what do I have to do? If I was God's arch enemy and man's arch enemy, the one thing I want to do is to destroy your joy. So, how am I going to destroy your joy? My joy comes from knowing that I'm the Lord's, I'm his child. See? So, what the devil begins to do is to begin to attack your security, creates doubt in your mind. One morning you get up, you're singing praises to God. You're almost like an angel. You're almost close to, to heaven. This much from heaven. The next day, you're dung in the dumps. You don't know how you got from there down there. I'll tell you how you got to there. The devil has played tricks with your mind. And begin to create doubts in your mind. So you can't enjoy. You're not singing anymore. You're singing in the minor key. You know why? The enemy knows I've got to keep that person down. His strength is his joy. Rob him of his joy. He doesn't have any strength. And that's why I believe the Apostle Paul spent so much time to give the believer so many arguments that a believer would have the assurance that once he has put his faith and trust in Christ, he is eternally secure. So what are the arguments that Paul uses? He uses eight arguments. I just want to share these with you very quickly. By the way, I must um, retract for just a moment and share a little story with you that really happened. My wife is here. She would confirm it as well. When we were ministering in St. Lucia, I'm going to show you this many years ago. Uh, passing a church in St. Lucia I had a friend in Barbados who came over and told us he wanted to find his daddy. He's been living all his life in Barbados, but he's a mixture between a St. Lucian and a Bajan. I think what happened is when he was born, his parents and his mother left him in the hospital. Something to that effect. So he's lived all his life wondering, where's his daddy? Who's his daddy? And he came over to St. Lucia and he spent some time with us. And uh, he came to check the register because he learned the last name of uh, this father. And he went into the registry. And there was a lady in our church, a young lady in our church, who was working at the registry at the time. And she helped him to seek out the name uh, of this gentleman. And uh, all I can tell you is this. He never was able to find the source, the person. And it was like his whole world collapsed. There's a man, and by the way, I was trying to remember how old he was and when I was old, but how old I was. But he had to be in his thirties. I want to find daddy. And when he couldn't find out who his real dad was, I can't remember if he found or, or the dad disowning, whatever it was. But I remember that it was profound disappointment. Okay. Profound disappointment. I mean, he was, he was totally disturbed. Now imagine going through your Christian life not even knowing who your father really is. How can you ever enjoy that? And that's why security is so important for the Christian. We're talking about salvation. But Paul spends more time on the matter of security than he spends on salvation. Because he wants the believer to know that the joy of the Lord is his strength. So let me share with you very quickly the arguments that Paul used to confirm our security in Christ. I'm just going to list them for you. Number one, the Apostle Paul says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. I didn't say the peace of God, two different things. We have peace. In other words, Paul is saying the war between you and God is over, it's over. A truce has been made, the issue has been resolved. Someone has paid for your sin. He's called the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's not only man, he's God. I've accepted what he's done on your behalf. So my war with you is over. You now have peace with God. Argument number one. Argument number two. You have access to this God. And you stand by this God by grace. You have access by grace. And you stand in grace. So he's dealing with me in grace. When he saved me, he dealt with me in grace. Now I'm living, he's dealing with me in grace. If he showed me favor when I was a sinner, he continues to show me favor now that I'm saved. So I remaining in Christ is not dependent on my works, is not dependent on the law, is not dependent on any ordinance. It's dependent on grace. Man, if it had Pentecostals in here, would be called breaking down this house. They'd be breaking down this house in praise and hallelujahs if you if had Pentecostals in here. Because once you understand this great truth, it thrills your soul. <laughs> Thirdly, Paul says, We have hope in the glory of God. And by the way, the word hope doesn't mean uh, we are ho- hope in The, the word means. Confident expectation. We have the confident expectation that we will receive God's glory. It's not a matter of doubting. We have that confident expectation. That's what hope in the Bible is. Confident expectation of God's glory. We're sure of it. It's number three. Thirdly, Paul says, and he uses a strange argument here by the way. He says, when we are going through tribulation in life, Paul says, you can be absolutely sure that even that tribulation you're going through is working towards your good. And Paul talks about how tribulation in life creates character, creates perseverance. Perseverance creates hope. So even tribulation cannot separate us from God. All the trials that we're going through in life are like a hammer and a chisel. And God is shaping you and forming you. Sometimes the edge is too sharp. You've got to cut it off. Sometimes he needs to make an indentation here. But with the master skill of a great sculptor, he is shaping and forming you and he's using the hammer of his will and he's using that particular tool of persecution, that tool of, of tribulation. And he's using his will, along with that, to shape and to mold you to make you who are supposed to be. Number five, Paul says, the other thing that you have, you have the Holy Spirit in you that sheds abroad the love of God in your heart. At times, you're going through tremendous trials. That's another argument Paul is using. The Holy Spirit sheds abroad in your heart. The Holy Spirit says to you, when nobody loves you, He loves you. He cares for you. He whispers to you. His solicitous care for the believer. Number five. And then the sixth thing that Paul does is that Paul uses divine logic. And here's the logic that Paul uses which I find so amazing. Paul asked the question. Paul said, look. If when you were ungodly and you were without strength, Christ died for you. If when you were sinners... Christ died for you. Now remember that. You were ungodly. Christ died for you. You were a sinner. Christ died for you. When you had no strength, Christ died. Then Paul said, much more now. Much more now, we shall be saved by his life. So if when I was a sinner, he did all that for me, now that he saved me, Paul is saying, how is it? conceivable That he who lives in heaven, you will not be saved as a result of his life. That's the logic that the Apostle Paul uses. It's called supreme divine logic. See. If God did the lesser for me, why should he not do the greater for me as well? See. Paul uses logic in that particular passage and he talks about uh, God doing much. And then the last thing, by the way, uh, f- number seven, is that Paul points out that we are now positionally in Christ. In verses 12 to 19, Paul said there are two federal heads of the universe. There was Adam, the old Adam, and now there's a new Adam called Christ. Paul said, before you were saved, you were in this Adam. You were guilty, condemned before God. You were in Adam. The second Adam came and did a work for you. So you know what Paul says God did? God Almighty took you out of this old Adam. And he took you over here and he put you in this new Adam. In other words, you're no longer part of that condemnation, that judgment. You're now in this Christ. It's called the the mystical union between the believer and Christ Jesus. You are in Christ. You are no... For you to be condemned, you have to go back into Adam. So God would have to take you out of Christ and then put you back right in, in in Adam. But to do that, he has to undo everything he's done for you to get to that point. And God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't make a decision today to save you and then say, you know what, I made a mistake. I better take this guy and put him back over there. That's not the God of the Bible. See, That's not the God of the Bible. And that's why it's so important. He's talking about the union of the believer. That guarantees your salvation. Finally. Finally, Paul uses one last argument. And here's the argument. Paul says, wherever sin abound, grace much more did abound. In other words, what Paul is saying is that no matter how much sin a person has committed, no matter how much error done, Paul is saying God's grace is far bigger than that. And God deals with me on the basis of what? Grace. So no matter how I think my sins are so deep and so uh, atrocious. And so evil and so wicked and so aberrant. No matter how I feel that my sins are... Nobody can forgive me for those sins. God says my grace is abundant above all your sin. So he now says, we are standing in grace. That's the argument. Now that leads me, finally this morning, to chapter 6. Not going to chapter 6, I'm just coming to there because I want to start back chapter 6. But here's what... When those people heard that Paul says, that wherever sin abounded, grace much more did abound. And that God is now dealing with man and grace. What would you think if you were Jew? You've been taught all your life, obey the law. If you want to be standing before God, obey the law. If you want to be righteous, obey the law. So now this man is saying, I don't need the law. But if I don't need the law to curtail my passions and my lust and my desires and my sin... What I am doing, you are advocating that a man can live as he pleased. That is the argument Paul is now going to deal with. Where does grace, how does grace relate to this new believer in Christ? Does grace encourage the believer to live in sin? Shall we sin, Paul said, that grace may abound? That's the whole issue. Now that I am saved by grace, does that encourage me to live a delinquent life, an immoral life? If I don't have the law restraining me, what stops me from living as I please? Chapter six, Paul answers that question. And we will answer that question as well, but not today, see? Because the tension between grace and salvation, how the two of them work? Is going to be the next issue that Paul deals with. Chapter 6 deals with this whole question of the believer and his life in relation to this grace of God. And he will explain to you what grace has done, where it has placed the believer. And because this is true of the believer, the believer cannot live like he used to live, even though he's not under law. As a means of living. Something happened in your life and my life. That causes you and I not to want to sin. Something happened. You want to know what it is? Come next week. Come next week. Come next week. I've trodded the ground and the territory that we've dealt with in Romans chapter 1 to 5. I I felt that to just rush into chapter 6 and not give you the background of where we we are at this point in time, I think it's important to have this continuity to see the Apostle Paul is systematically working through this epistle. And therefore I thought you need that preparation ground. I hope that you are not disappointed that i spent this time rehashing what we've done. But I doubt anybody in here would have remembered what we covered in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and then to leap into chapter 6 without having the background of what happened to chapter 6, I think it kind of left you kind of hanging. I thought it was appropriate just to lead up to where we are and then go on from there. I want to say this in closing this morning. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're thinking. But have have you entered into this JBFA plan? Have you, are you part of this JBFA plan? Have you been justified by faith alone? Listen to me. It's the only plan that God offers you. If you're ever going to be saved, you must become part of this JBFA plan. Without, no matter what you do, you can invent another plan, another church can invent another plan, another group can invent another plan, but listen to me, <laughs> it's not going to work. There's one plan. The JBFA plan. Justified by faith alone. That's how you become converted. If you're not saved this morning, and you've been wrestling with this question, Pastor, what in the world is this whole thing about? By the way, you, you, you know the great Spurgeon? You know how he got saved, don't you? Might have shared this with you many years ago. The great Spurgeon... Uh, had a problem. How to be saved? I mean, he was resting with this question. Why in the world do I get saved? How do I... I mean, he was. people didn't know that, but in his mind, he's resting with this. What is, what's this salvation all about? And one day, Spurgeon decides he is going to go to a church, and a storm came. A storm where snow was falling. And Spurgeon couldn't get to the church he intended to go to. So because of the storm was falling, he ended up in a a little church. But when he got there, he got the worst disappointment. The pastor wasn't there either because of the storm. So who can preach? Pastor, so guess what? One of the deacons got up. And basically... He said, look, I'm I, not really a preacher, but I'm going to preach. I'm going to share. So he got up and he went from Isaiah. And you know what he kept saying? Look unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be ye saved. Look unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be ye saved. Look on he was stuck on that. Look unto me, all, you know what? That is what get said. For the first time in his life, it dawned on him by looking to God for salvation. This is where he would find it. Not by his works. Not by anything he could do. It was simple faith in looking to God for his salvation. And the great preacher was brought to faith by a message of a man who couldn't preach. But who just kept repeating the same verse again and again. That's how Spurgeon got saved. So you came in here this morning. You were asking the question, how does a man get right with God? And I told you, the JBFA plan. I told you God's plan. Justification by faith alone. The difference between you and Spurgeon is that Spurgeon was serious. And once God gave him the answer to the question, he responded. The question, you you came in here, wanted an answer, but the answer is not what you wanted. You want to hear something else? Consequently, you're not going to yield as Spurgeon did. To turn your life over to him. You're making a fatal mistake this morning. My advice to you and my counsel to you is to come to the Lord. Embrace his plan. Put your faith and trust in Him. Taste and see that the Lord is good this morning by trusting Him as Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for these dear people who sat here and listened and we hope listened attentively. We walked through this great epistle. What a marvelous work it is. How the Apostle Paul uh, explains so clearly man's plight and God's provision. We thank you this morning that it could not be clearer and could not be simpler. The case could not be prosecuted with greater clarity and greater power. What a thing the Apostle Paul has done. It's marvelous in our eyes. I pray for that one this morning who is still struggling who is not too sure to belong to the Lord, who has not put their faith and trust in Him. Oh God, this morning, may Your Word engender faith in that person's heart, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. May that person yield fully and finally, surrendering to Your truth, embracing Your plan, and trust in Christ as Saviour. They came in here with doubt and uncertainty. May they leave here... With confidence. May they leave here with certainty this morning. And may they go away... As the Ethiopian did... Rejoicing... In the Lord. Help us, O God, as we move through this uh, epistle. Help our people to see the benefit of it. Give those who still have lingering doubts assurance let them go back to the book of romans and see the arguments that paul uses and may their faith be fortified by these arguments the apostle paul and remind us these are not just the arguments of a man this is a man who has been given the genius of the spirit to answer the questions that the human heart craves. so the source is not paul himself The source of the Spirit of God that inspired the Apostle Paul. These are not human answers. These are divine answers. Remove the scales from our eyes. The hardness of our hearts. Break it this morning with your word. The stubbornness of our wills. May you turn our wills around in your direction. Father, do your work that only you can do accomplish your purpose we thank you in christ's name amen
0: be sure you join us again next time here on sermons of grace as pastor murphy continues our study of romans chapter 6 if you'd like to contact pastor david murphy or grace baptist church please call 268 462 4230 or visit during one of their service times Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gamble's Terrace, Antigua.